Good morning, everyone. Take that precious book that you hold in your hands this morning and open it up to the Apostle Paul's first letter to Timothy. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. This is the second sermon in a series that I've entitled A Healthy Body. Uh, the aim of this series is to remind us of what biblically healthy church life and therefore biblically healthy um, church membership looks like. So I am bouncing around between different passages of Scripture. Normally we preach uh, ex expository sermons verse by verse through books of the Bible. But occasionally we do a topical series as the Lord leads. But even in topical sermons, they must be expositional in that they are drawn directly from the text of Scripture. And today's text is 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. Now I'm going to go a little Harbin's old school on us this morning. When we first started the church, I used to do a lot of physical illustrations because I could never get quite get the children's pastor out of me. And because we believed in bringing our, the family together for worship, I always tried to do some sort of illustration that would kind of grab the children's attention. So I'm going, to, I'm going to go back to that today. This is actually an illustration I did years ago, and it colossally failed when I did it. So hopefully it'll work today. But I just have a question for the children in here. I've got a, a piece of paper here. Would you say that a piece of paper is, is strong or is it sort of flimsy? What was that, Trinity? Kind of flimsy, right? It's, it's not real strong. It's, you can easily tear it. So let me ask you a question. Can this piece of paper, do you think, hold up, hold up this heavy Bible? You think this piece of paper can hold up this heavy Bible? How about I give it a shot here and uh, we'll see if it can. Here we go. Ready? Okay, you're right. That piece of paper could not hold up that heavy Bible. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again, except I'm going to change something here. Okay, let's get rid of this piece of paper, and let's hope this works. Um, I'm going to take this piece of paper, and I'm going to do something to it. I'm going to shape it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put this tube here, and I'm going to wrap this piece of paper around the tube, if I can. Give me just a second. All right, here we go. I'm going to wrap this piece of paper around the tube. I'm trying to make it tight here, as tight as I can. Okay, let's make sure it's nice and tight. And let's uh, tape it so it keeps its shape. We want the shape to now be like the tube. We took the tube out. And now we're going to try it again, and, Lord willing, we'll have a different result. All right, here we go. Same piece of paper, only it's in a different shape. And now, let's put our heavy Bible on it, make sure I balance it on there right, and voila, sure enough, it did it, didn't it? Okay, that same paper, flimsy, weak, in and of itself, when it is shaped in the right way, was able to hold up this heavy Bible. That illustration came to my mind last night as I was thinking about this passage of Scripture. In and of ourselves, as the people of God, by ourselves, we are weak. We are not strong. But as the people of God, if we'll allow our church 
to be shaped by the Word of God, to be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be focused on the person of Jesus Christ, if we allow that to happen, then something changes in us. We become something strong. We become a church that can be a pillar and buttress of the truth. We must be shaped by God's Word in order to be strengthened by God's Word so that we can uphold God's Word. That's what today's text is all about. So I want you to turn there if you haven't already, and I want you to stand now as we get ready to read 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. We have looked last week at the nature of the church. Today I want to think about the purpose of the church. And hopefully that will lead us into the next set of sermons which will all focus on the ministry of the church. How we live out, how we do this thing called church. And we stand in the honor of reading God's word because what we're reading here is not, not simply Paul's thoughts. It's not some old ancient book of myths. What we're reading here is the infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient Word of God. It carries the exact same authority as if Jesus Christ in the flesh were standing here speaking to you. So that's why we stand. Let's, re- let's read it now. First Timothy 3, beginning of verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you for your word. We pray now that you would uh, give us receptive hearts. We pray that you would add your blessing now to the word that's just been read as I preach it. So give us ears to hear. Give me a mouth to speak. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This passage that I just read, of course, it's part of Paul's letter to Timothy, and it's It's the hub, really, the center or the heart of this entire epistle. In today's text, we have Paul's very clearly stated purpose statement for writing this letter. And what follows that purpose, what's in that purpose statement, is is a very profound and powerful statement about the design and the purpose of the church. On either side of today's text, in this epistle... Paul is addressing what error in the church looks like and how to avoid it. And then he's talking about what life looks like in the church and how to foster it. And he's even been talking about what leadership in the church looks like and how to protect it. To put it simply, Paul is writing this letter so that Christians might know what doing life together as a community of believers should look like. And so here in the center of this letter, he is reminding Timothy and reminding the Ephesians... Timothy was a pastor of the church in Ephesus. He is reminding Timothy and reminding the Ephesians and reminding us of the fundamentals. The fundamentals of what church is all about. Now it's football season. And I know it's cliche, but what do you always hear a coach say when their team loses? we got to get back to the, the fundamentals. And I know it's cliche. I mean, 
what do you expect him to say? You know, we got to come up with more complex schemes of defense instead of tackling. I mean, he's not going to say that. He always says, we got to get back to the fundamentals. Of course, the most famous football coach who ever said something like that was, was Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi once uh, trying to drive home the point that he wanted his team to focus on the fundamentals, started off a team meeting by holding up a football, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And immediately he made his points. In only five words, Lombardi communicated his point. We're going to go back to the very basics and make sure we are executing all the fundamentals. And so we come to this text, and this is the fundamentals. And although this text contains the fundamentals, do not mistake it as superficial or light. The truths contained in this short passage are infinitely deep and profound with great implications for our church. So I see three things in today's text. First, I want us to see the conduct that marks the church. The conduct that marks the church. Verse 14 We have Paul giving his reason for writing this letter. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, here's the purpose, verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So it seems that Paul, upon leaving Ephesus, he had appointed Timothy as sort of the lead elder pastor in the church. And from his words where he says, I hope to come to you soon, it seems that Paul was planning to take a missionary journey back to Ephesus to encourage Timothy to further equip him and to give important instructions to him regarding how the church should be ordered. We see him say again later in chapter 4, verse 13, that his intention was to go and see the church. But Paul, sensing that there might be an interruption of his plans, writes these things down for the interim period. He says, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know. Now, I just want to pause right there just real quick and think about and praise God for his providence. Had there not been trouble in Ephesus, had there not been a stirring in Paul's heart, had there not been a timid pastor named Timothy there, and there had, not, had there not been an anticipation of delay we wouldn't have this book. We wouldn't have these words that divinely shape and structure the mission and vision of the church. Such is the sovereignty of God to produce and preserve his word for his church. And by the way, there's no evidence that, from the New Testament at least, that Paul was ever able to make that return visit to Ephesus. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, what is it that Paul wanted the church in Ephesus to know? He said, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one, and that means everyone in the church, not just Timothy, how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul says that this letter is written so the church might know the conduct that marks a true church. Now, when Paul says ought to behave, We need to read that as a command. Paul isn't saying how one might behave or how one could behave, but how one should behave, how one must behave. Paul is saying that these things he has been writing to Timothy, all these written before and all this coming afterwards, contain the necessary standard of conduct, the imperative pattern of living that should mark God's people. 
how one ought to behave in the household of God. What a tremendous descriptor this is of the church, the household of God. How many of you, uh, how many of you grew up in the church, were little kids growing up in the church? Really, it's the minority here in our church, which, which actually I praise God that he, he's brought people who didn't grow up in a Christian background to Harbin's. But I grew up in the church, and, and maybe you can, can relate to this. I remember getting in trouble sometimes. Not a lot. That usually was my brother's job. I get in trouble sometimes running around in the church. And there was a lady, and I cannot remember her name. I really tried hard to remember her name. There was a lady, and she always said the same thing to us. You kids, there's no running in the house of God. She'd say that every time. There's no running in the house of God. And she would jump down our throats. And, of course, I always thought, okay, fine, I'll go outside. (laughs) And, of course, she was talking about, don't run around in this building. But, of course, we know when Paul says household of God here, he is not talking about a physical building. He's talking about the people who make up the family of God. So when you hear household of God, think family of God. Yes, the Old Testament background of this phrase, household of God, would have indeed brought to mind a physical location. These words remind us of Jacob after his dream in Genesis 28 of the heavenly staircase when he said this, Surely this is the house of God. Surely the Lord is present in this place. And that's why he named that physical place where he was Bethel, house of God. And then later in um, Exodus, after the Exodus, I should say, the tabernacle became that place. And was called the house of God. And then in Solomon's reign, the temple became the house of God. The focal point of God's presence with his people. But don't misunderstand. It is not that the Old Testament saints thought that the God of heaven and earth could be located in one spot. Or that the omnipresent God could be contained in a tent or in a building. Rather, the house of God was a physical location that represented and manifested God's nearness to, his love for, his favor on, and his communion with his people. You remember when God judged his people, he removed his glory, it says, from the temple. But those houses of God were mere shadows. In the new covenant, there is no longer a tent or a building or a special location. Instead, the new covenant, in the new covenant, the people of God have been united to the Son of God and are now indwelled by the Spirit of God so that now, wherever the people of God are gathered, wherever there is a local congregation of believers, whether it be in a majestic sanctuary somewhere in the United States or under a baobab tree in Africa, wherever the new covenant people of God are assembled, there is the household of God. So Paul is saying to us that we need to know how to conduct ourselves. Why? Because you are the household of God. It's absolutely staggering. You and I are the house of God. What we read about, Demer read to us earlier, Ephesians 2, 18. Let me remind us of that passage. 
For through him we both have access to one spirit, in one spirit to the Father. So he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles now having access to the Father. He says, through the Spirit, there's the presence of God with his people through the Spirit. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are that new temple. Verse 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what Paul has already communicated to the Ephesians. Remember, he's writing now to, for, to Timothy, who's a pastor in Ephesus. So when they hear household of God, they're thinking immediately to what Paul's already taught them about the household of God. Which we just read in Ephesians chapter 2. And it should be a stunning thing to think about. That we are being built together as a temple for the living God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you, plural, you, not just you yourself, there's truth to that as well, but you, plural, Paul is saying, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. 1 Peter 2.5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So let's think about this. Conduct... The conduct that Paul is speaking about here isn't about how you behave when you're inside this building. There's truth that governs that as well. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking primarily about how you behave when you walk in this building to make sure you're acting a certain way, that you're doing this a certain way or doing that a certain way. It's about how you behave towards one another. Your conduct in the household of God is all about how you treat and love one another. That's what Paul is talking about. It's about praying together. It's about the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. It's about killing sin together. It's about encouraging one another. It's about experiencing grace with one another. It's about the rich one anotherness that's all throughout the scriptures, 59 different one another's in the New Testament that we are called to do. That's what it means to conduct yourself well in the household of God. It's about doing that thing we call the Christian walk together. First Timothy is all about our duty, duty to one another as the household of God. Now we're going to touch on this much much more in the weeks to come. And, um, but for now, let's move on in this passage of Scripture. Paul wants us to know how we ought to behave in the household of God. And then he goes on to say, to describe this household of God, he says, which is the church of the living God. Now let, let me simply remind us of two things we've already looked at last week. First, the church simply means the, the assembly or the gathering together of those who are called out of the world and called into the kingdom of light, into God's kingdom. But secondly, this passage reminds us yet again, what we looked at last week, that the church is not our church. It is not Steve's church. It's God's church. It's the household of God. It's the church of the living God, of God. God's house belongs to God, and God has every right to determine what conduct in his house looks like. We are his house. He determines what our worship looks like, what our love for one another looks like, 
what our service to one another looks like, what our outreach to the world should look like. He determines those, not us. So many of the problems in the local churches all around this globe that they're facing today would be solved if we would simply realize that we are God's house. We are not our own. We belong to him. This is his church, not ours. He sets the rules. If I came into your house, I don't know, one of y'all's house, Peter, if I came into your house and I walked in and I started rearranging the furniture, yeah, like this, I'm going to put this over here, and then I started rewriting your house rules and said, nah, Jared, Jonah, y'all can do that, don't worry about it, you know. If I came into your house and started doing that, you would call me arrogant and rude. Yet how many of us have the gall to do that very same thing in God's house? scary thing. Now notice we, the church of the li- we, are, we are the church of the living God. In several places in the Old Testament, Yahweh is called the living God in contrast, in contrast to the dead idols of the surrounding peoples. Israel was to be different for their God was living as evidenced by his presence in their midst. O church, our God lives among us. Scriptures say that when we were converted, we left dead things and came to the living God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says that they, the Thessalonians, had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We serve a living God. And again, he lives in us, for we are his temple. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6.16. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, listen to this. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God with us in the new covenant, Emmanuel. God dwelling with us in a much greater way than he ever did in the tabernacle or in the temple. So we must understand that our conduct is not cold, rigid, obedience that we must muster up by our own willpower. No, our conduct flows out of the presence of the living God in and through his people. So even when we do conduct ourselves in the household of God the way we should, God gets all the glory because it's his spirit doing it in and through us. He's with us. What is it that Jesus said there at the end of that great commission? Behold, I am with you. To the end of the age. No Harbins, God is really among us. And it should change the way we live. It should fuel the way we speak. It should be evident in the way we love one another. And it should therefore be evident to an onlooking world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in verse 25, Paul says the behavior and the order in the church should be such that when an unbeliever or an outsider comes in, quote, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. My desire is for the onlooking world and unbelievers that walk into this, this, this place that they see not a building, not cool graphics or anything else, but they see that the living God is among these people. That's what we want. That's what we pray for. That's my dream for this church. There is behavior that ought to mark the church of God, for God is a God of order. 
in this manner of conducting ourselves, it's not aimless. Instead, it serves the purpose of what we see next in the text. So first we have conduct that should mark the church. And if you're wondering, Steve, give us some specifics there. That's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. So let's move on now from the conduct that should mark the church. And now we see the charge that moves the church, meaning the, the command, the, the mission statement that moves, that, that motivates, that mobilizes the church. And we see that charge as Paul goes on to describe the church. So let me back up and just so we can have the whole context again and just keep reading. I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And here's our next focus, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In those words, we have the mission, the marching orders, the charge that moves the church of God to do its God-ordained job in this dark world. Namely, to be a pillar and buttress of truth. Pillar carries the idea of support, of upholding. And buttress probably be better translated as foundation. Now Paul is still drawing on the language of the household of God here. For just as the physical household, the, the physical temple, the physical uh, tabernacle had, had certain pillars and foundations, so too the house of God. The church is that structure upholding the truth. Now some people get very confused by this passage. They ask the question, and it's a good question. Is the church really the foundation of the truth? Isn't it rather that the truth is the foundation of the church? Paul in Ephesians 2, 20, which we saw earlier, had referred to the, the teaching of the apostles, the truth, as the foundation, uh, and, and with Jesus as that chief cornerstone. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said that Jesus Christ himself, who is the personification of truth, is that foundation. So, so what gives here in this passage? Well, let me let someone much smarter than me explain it. Let me just quote John Stott here. When Paul taught that the truth is the foundation of the church, he was referring to the church's life and health. The church rests on the truth, depends on it, cannot exist without it. But when he taught that the church is the foundation of the truth, as we have in chapter 3, verse 15, he is referring to the church's mission. The church is called to serve the truth, to hold fast and make it known. Then the church and the truth need each other. The church depends on the truth for its existence and the truth depends on the church for its defense and its proclamation. So that was the image I was trying to give you with this little illustration here. The church must be shaped by the truth so the church can then hold up and proclaim the truth. So the church then has a mission, a charge to be a pillar of the truth, to put God's word on a pedestal, to proclaim it in both our words and our deeds. The local church is the means by which God makes his truth, his word, known to the world. Of course, of course, primarily that means the proclaiming of the word. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In Luke 24, we read something similar, verse 47. Jesus said that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. In his name to all nations. But this also means that we must have lives that line up with the word. Putting it on display in how we conduct ourselves in the household of God. Meaning how we love one another. Don't forget Jesus' words in John 17, 23. When he's praying for his, churches, his church and he's praying for their love and he's praying for their unity. 
And why does he pray for these things? He says this, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. We, we put the truth on display when we conduct ourselves well in the household of God. The way we live actually gives credence to the message. Titus is one of the best places to see this. In Titus 1.1, 1, 1, Paul says that our knowledge of the truth should accord with godliness. So there's the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the truth, and that should accord with, it should line up with godliness, the way we live. And hold on to that word, godliness. We'll see it here in a minute. And then later in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, after the church has been charged to teach sound doctrine, Paul then challenges the church to live in such a way, and it says this, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, Titus 2.10. Our living does not replace our proclaiming. Instead, it adorns it. It gives it credence. And that adorning happens primarily right here in the household in the way we do those 59 one another's. So that an onlooking world hears and sees that God is in that place. Luke eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Oh, friend, we are not called to cold orthodoxy, simply hearing the truth each Lord's day, consuming the truth each Lord's day, and then doing nothing for one another in the days in between. The word of God, if it is truly being held up and put on display by Harbin's, if we really are being the pillar shining forth the word to the world, this should be a church where sacrificial love and courageous service to one another is commonplace. This is the proper conduct. This is the proper doing in the household of God. James says in James 1:22, be doers of the word. Doers, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So we put the word on display by proclaiming it and by living it. And the only way to live and proclaim it is if we are saturated with it, right? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. But the church isn't only the pillar of the truth. It also says here it's the, the buttress or the foundation and the image here is one of security and sure footing. The idea being that the church is the defender and protector of the truth. We are not called to adjust the truth to make it more palatable to our culture. Uh, we are not called to soften the truth for our world. We are called to defend the truth. To be the one place in the world... The church must be the one place in the world where truth is on sure footing. Paul tells Timothy later in this epistle, chapter 6, verse 1, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. The truth has been entrusted to the church. John chapter 17, verse 14, again, that high priestly prayer of Jesus's. We read where Jesus says in that verse, Praying to the Father, he says, I have given them your word. The idea being here that not only has Jesus taught it to us, but he has entrusted it to us. I have given them, they have been entrusted with your 
word. Patrick uh, Fairborn, Fairbairn, I'm not sure quite how to, to, to pronounce it. He's a Scottish preacher and theologian from the 1800s. He, he said this, I just thought this quote struck home. He says, for the truth is not of the church's making, but of God's revealing. She has it not as of her own, but from above, and has it not to alter or modify at her will, but to keep as a sacred treasure for the glory of God and the good of men. And if she should anyhow corrupt or lose hold of this truth, she so far ceases to be the house of God. Amen. Now let us move on. We've seen Paul's words regarding the conduct that marks the church, the charge that moves the church. And now let us see the confession that moors the church. Moors, if you don't know what that means, it simply means anchors the church, holds it steadfast, makes it strong. The confession that moors the church. And so we see here the back and forth, as I mentioned earlier, between the truth and the church. The truth is the foundation. I mean, the church, I should say, is the foundation of the truth only so much as the truth is the foundation of the church. And that foundational word, that same word that we uphold, we should uphold every, every week here at Harbin's, is a word centered on Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus is our confession. And that's what we have here at the end of this psalm. Let me just read, at the end of this passage, I should say. Let me just read verse 16, and then we'll walk back through it. Great indeed, we confess. Let me stop right there real quick. This is your argument right here for the church being a confessional body. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, referring to Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now this is most likely a very early Christian hymn. In the Greek, the construction and even the rhyme leads one to believe that this was a song. This was a hymn that was sung perhaps among the Ephesian church. Verse 16 says, great indeed we confess. This word in the Greek means we agree. Great indeed we agree, we confess, is the mystery of Godliness. Now, when you hear this great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, you, you can't quite pick up on what this would have meant to the Ephesians. You remember back in Acts chapter 19 when Paul is preaching in Ephesus and God's word is having such an effect that people are coming to the Lord and they're burning their idols and burning their books of magic and different things like that. And it affects the local economy. And what happens is the local blacksmith gets together with some of the other merchants because they realize they're losing business now because the, their idol-making business is beginning to tank as a result of Paul's preaching. And so they stir up a riot. When they stir up a riot, there's a chant that starts up among the crowd. Remember that chant? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great indeed is Artemis of the Ephesians. That wasn't just something they said randomly. That was, that was a, a, an act of worship towards Artemis, to proclaim her as great indeed. And so Paul here says, uh-uh. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness, which is all about, as we just read, Jesus Christ. Now mystery, as we've taught before, this word mystery, when used by Paul, refers to a divine truth once hidden but now revealed. And what is that mystery? That mystery is the person and work of Jesus Christ. But before we get to that, notice quickly that he calls this a mystery of godliness. 
And to me, this sort of ties this whole passage together. That word godliness, as we just talked about, refers to our way of living. It refers to our way of living. So Paul is saying that the key to the way we live is the word of truth about Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, let me just say it again. We are not called to cold orthodoxy. We are called to a type of orthodoxy, to a type of confession that produces godliness and puts the truth on display. That's what we're called to. And that truth, that truth is centered on Jesus Christ. All God's word, all God's truth points to and has its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Therefore, he is the center, he is the locus of all we preach and teach. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was 1 Corinthians 2, 2, not 2 Corinthians. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we read, For, we, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And then that marvelous passage is so convicting in Philippians 1.18, where some friends come to Paul and say, hey, there's some people preaching about Jesus, but you know what? They're just doing it in spite. They're doing it to get you jealous. They're doing it to cause you harm. And Paul says this, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. The truth we hold up, the truth we defend, is truth centered on the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if we hold fast to our confession that Jesus is Lord, it drives the way we conduct ourselves in the household of God. In other words, it affects how we treat one another. To see that tied together, let's go to Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 24. It says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And then it says this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That word and there between those two verses. Don't see that our love and good works and our stirring of one another up as something optional. But see it as something that flows out of our confession of the truth. So now let us look at this beautiful early hymn. This early confession about Jesus our Lord. First notice the structure. There are three couplets here. So there's six lines to the hymn, but they're coupled together. Okay, Each couplet speaks about a, a truth about Jesus while creating a deliberate antithesis. So, so look at it real quickly here. Look at couplet number one. It says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit. So the antithesis is flesh and spirit. And then look at the next one. He was seen by angels... Proclaimed among nations. So the antithesis is angels and nations. And then the last one, he's believed on in the world, and then he's taken up in glory. The antithesis is this world and glory. So what's being highlighted by those antithesis? What is being highlighted is simply the divine and the human aspect of Jesus' work. The cosmic scale of Jesus' work. His finished work. May heaven and earth declare the glory of his name. Now let's look at each line individually. And I hope in doing so, we behold anew the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and the work he carried out on our behalf. First of all, he was manifested in the flesh. This refers to his incarnation. He was manifested in the flesh. He wasn't created in the flesh. 
meaning he was the preexistent. He was manifested. He is the preexistent, preexistent son with the Father, but in love and the Spirit, but in love at the proper time, he was born of a woman, born under the law, and took on flesh. Manifested means he was made visible. John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And then later in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25, he has appeared, he has appeared, he has manifested, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, was made manifest by taking on flesh and becoming man so that he could save sinful men. Philippians 2, verses 7 through 8, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Hebrews 2, 14, and following says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Glory be to God that Jesus was manifest in the flesh. We confess that truth, and we confess that he not only was manifest in the flesh, but he was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated is the same word translated in other places as justified. And you may be wondering, but why, why would Jesus need to be justified? Well, he didn't need to be justified. We sinners need to be justified. Jesus was already just, and he remained sinless so that he could be that, the just and the justifier that we read of in Sunday school today. So what does it mean that he was justified or vindicated by the Spirit? Well, justified isn't about being made sinless. It's about being declared sinless. When was Jesus declared sinless? When did that happen? When was Jesus declared sinless? When was he vindicated by the Spirit? It happened when he walked out of that grave. When the stone rolled away. When death was forced to release its grip. On the Holy Son of God. Romans 1.3 says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus had no sin. Therefore, when he died, death could not hold him. So when the Holy Spirit raised him up, he was declared to be what he has already eternally been, namely, not guilty and therefore justified. He was vindicated. And so if we confess Christ, we are united to him. His death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. So his vindication, his justification becomes our justification. We have sinned. But if we confess Christ, then he has taken our sin, he has paid our price on the cross, and he has died our death, and then he, by virtue of his own righteousness, has risen again, and because we are united to him, we too have been declared not guilty, we too have been justified, we too have been vindicated. Romans 4, 25. 
says that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Oh, friends, what glorious truth the church is called to confess. What hope we have in this confession. Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The confession continues. It says he was seen by angels. Now, this may, ref- this may refer to the angelic work um, that accompanied Jesus' earthly ministry. Angels were present at his birth. Angels were ministering to him after his temptation. Angels were even strengthening him at the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's angels present at the resurrection. That might be what the hymn means, but I think there's something more at work here. Because if we're thinking about this hymn, we're thinking about the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished. And we're thinking about the, the victory that Jesus has accomplished, both on the earth and in the spiritual realms. Remember the couplets. The earth and the spiritual realms. So I think this is talking about and referring to Jesus' victory over fallen angels, over the spiritual realms. Colossians 2.15, speaking of Jesus' work on Calvary, says this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's not talking about earthly rulers and authorities. That's the spiritual rulers and authorities. I think that's what 1 Peter 3.19 is speaking about when it says Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So when Jesus walked out of that grave and vindicated us, those who are united to him, he also was seen by angels, certainly by God's holy angels who joyfully watched God's plan unfold, a plan that they couldn't even have imagined, but also by the fallen angels who experienced defeat as they saw him victoriously crushing their master. Next we read in this confession that he was proclaimed among the nations. I think this refers to Pentecost. For at Pentecost, we have the reversal of Babel. The table of nations are present right there at Pentecost. And so as the word of Christ is proclaimed among the nations in their languages, the curse of Babel is reversed as tongues are given so that people might be able to understand. So let me just read part of that. Acts 2, 2, beginning verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So he was proclaimed among the nations. And we know on that day, that day of Pentecost, 3,000 believed and thousands more. And as the course of history has, has continued, millions more have believed. And that's the next piece of the confession. Believed on in the world. I think this refers to Jesus' great commission, the ongoing work of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And one of the places we find that commission is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then what do we have after verse 8? You say, well, duh, we have verse 9. Yes, but what is verse 9? Verse 9 says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And that's the final piece of the confession. Taken up in glory. Taken up in glory. I believe this refers not only to the physical ascension of Jesus, but also to his exaltation. The second half of that Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 verse that we read earlier says this, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And the remaining portion of that Philippians 2 passage that I read earlier says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what we believe. Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the confession we stand on. This is what moors us. This is what anchors us. Hebrews 6, 9 speaks of Jesus as the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. So in conclusion, unbeliever here this morning, let this confession transform you. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ who did indeed take on flesh, who died for sinners, who rose again, and who is seated on high with a name that is above every name. One day you will bow before him. Oh, friend, in love I am begging you to do it willingly today and not on that day. Come to him. In Harbin's church, let this confession shape us. Let the truth of Jesus Christ shape us. These truths must be what make us strong. May the truth of God strengthen this church as this church confesses Christ. And then in that strength, may this church be a pillar upholding the word of God, upholding the truth of Jesus Christ to the world. May this church be a foundation defending the truth of Jesus Christ in this world. And our words will only be as effective as our actions will allow them to be. Harbins, you are the household of God Conduct yourselves toward one another in such a way that this truth you confess is shown to be true and transformative. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the mystery of godliness that rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The conduct that we are called to do at Harbin's will not happen if the truth of Jesus Christ is not proclaimed. If we just have decent conduct toward one another and we do not proclaim the truth, then, Father, we are a mere social club and you will remove your lampstand. So, God, help us. Help us to be that pillar and buttress of truth. It is not something we can do on our own. But it's something we can confidently pray for, Father, because we know you have given us your spirit. We are your house. You reside with us and in us. 
And therefore, we have confidence to say, yes, Father, please make us who you want us to be. Command what you will, Father, and will what you command. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, if you would, as the worship team leads us in one closing song.